a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, I want you to understand right from the beginning, I didn't just wake up one day and think to myself, you know, I'm going to start talking about extremely controversial things that go against the norm, that make my family wonder if I'm crazy, cause me to lose friends, and otherwise uh, find myself sitting on the margins of society. No, what I experienced was multiple events that fundamentally transformed my perceptions, and you know what? I felt a responsibility to say something about it. I'm guessing you may be in a similar situation. If not, that I'm going to ask you to bear with me, but I'm also totally okay with the idea that what you hear in this program may not be what you want to hear. And that's okay. You are under no obligation to continue to listen if you find something here that's disagreeable. And thankfully, my worldview is not dependent upon, well, I need as many people as possible to agree with me so I can feel validated. You kind of get used to... uh, not running with the crowd after a while. But if you are one of those people who has uh, opened your eyes and you're, you're seeing clearly the way that things are, and you realize this is not good, but I'm determined to be more connected to the truth than I am to my comfort, I think you're actually going to enjoy what I have to share with you today. And you're certainly going to come away with the understanding you are not alone. Certainly not as alone as some would like you to think you are in what's happening. I do want to mention a couple of sponsors who make this program possible. They include HSLAmmo.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and GarageDoorProServices.com. So I think we'll just jump right in with the idea of being awake and aware of what's happening to our freedoms, what's happening to our culture, our society, can be painful. And I mean to put it mildly, it's, it's very uncomfortable to see Things that we once leaned upon as well, that's, you know, pretty much written in stone and it's always going to be there. And suddenly, no, it's it's on its way out or it's considered, you know, horrible, terrible, superstitious. We have to get rid of it. I've got a great commentary here from Martin Geddes. What I saw in Occam's Mirror. You probably heard of Occam's Razor, but this is Occam's Mirror. The subtitle here is, The waiting is painful for those awake, but there's agony ahead for those who are asleep. And Martin Geddes makes the comment that I've discovered in the last year or so that my most popular essays are not those on philosophical discernment or analysis of geopolitics or even the minutia of information warfare. He says, what resonates the most is when I speak from the heart and my own experience echoes that of the reader. And he's right. This this is where we connect, right? He says, it's cathartic to have our hopes and hurts acknowledged and for someone to bear witness to our shared struggle. So he says, in a sense, the title of this essay is odd, given that introduction. Occam's razor is a tool of pure logical thinking, a heuristic that directs us toward the explanation with the fewest assumptions. And this divides the more plausible answer from the less plausible one, encouraging us to keep our cosmology simple and not invent magical interventions to justify our beliefs. Now, he does admit it's imperfect. It can be misused. The problem can be misframed. And that's why it's only a helpful heuristic rather than a hard law. 
But he says, my view is that the struggle of the past few years has been a kind of Occam's mirror, which has shown us the world more clearly, including ourselves and those around us. He says, one part of humanity has sunk deep into a hypnotic psychosis and performed the most absurd and dangerous rituals on themselves and their children. The other part of humanity has looked on in horror at the engineered fear, trashing of human rights, and mass participation in a death cult. Martin Geddes says, This mirror has helped us to see far more clearly who we are and what we stand for. And he says, Sometimes I wonder what those who come after us will make of this bizarre period in history. Just as Occam's razor divides the likely true from the likely false, Occam's mirror separates the real from the unreal and helps us to tell that story. A spiritual war depends on you substituting a false reality for an observed one and dedicating your energy to wickedness. So he asks, what have I learned, gaze, or what have I observed, rather, gazing into this reflected horror show of deceit and dissidence, and what have I learned? Well, he says, the easiest place to begin is with myself. A now former friend once observed that I'm very values-driven, as if it were a charming defect in a world of real politic. But Martin Geddes says, what I've learned is that nothing will make me sell out to lies or wickedness or sacrifice a fellow human being for my own selfish interests. I have many failings and faults and make endless mistakes that are a cause for embarrassment. Just none of that, none of that, just none that really matters, he says. Those are issues of personal morality, not an ethical failure in dealing with the innocent, notably children. And he says this refusal to budge is extremely painful in a context where the masses have been brainwashed and hoodwinked into supporting downright evil authority. In fact, he says, I've lost sleep many nights, churning over the personal betrayals, the stunning self-justified wrongdoing, and the absence of love and care in my direction. Those who've adopted collectivist ideals and communist methods are willing to try to break my will for my apostasy from their depraved mania. That sound familiar? He says, they've tried to force me into subjugation to sustain their own delusions. And it saddens me, but he says, I found I can live with persistent sadness. I've discovered that I cannot be broken by ostracism, false witness, denouncement, hijacking of my parental role, the loss of normal family joys, neglect, or lack of resources. Quite the opposite. The more they try to control me, the more determined I become not to let it happen. The quiet and sensitive person I am in private has located a warrior inside and unleashed him. Circumstances have forced me to fight, and I've come to rather relish it. Now, he says, that same former friend taught me in any upheaval to pay attention to what isn't changing. He says, I tend to avoid writing about my own spiritual beliefs in public, especially as there is little agreement over terminology and easy misunderstanding. But he says, Occam's mirror has greatly clarified where I stand. What you worship, in other words, hold in such esteem that you're willing to die for, is your invariant pole star. He says, I don't worship temporal institutions. I do not accept them as arbiters of morality or reality. And the distress of the last few years has forced me to look inside and grasp my spiritual core and acknowledge its unchanging relationship to the cosmos. I got to hit the pause button here for just a second and just say, does this not ring true? Is this a similar journey to what you have been going through? Because 
man, he's checking off a lot of the boxes for me here of uh, things that I've experienced as well. And this doesn't make us special and it doesn't make us better than anybody else. But it is kind of comforting to find out that somebody else has been through this and actually embraced it for what it is. I guess I understand where he's coming from. He says, when I survey those around me, what do I see in the mirror? Well, on the one hand, there are the egotistical ones whose surface veneer of good manners and civil discourse hides a ruthless dedication to lazy selfishness and cowardly unaccountability. He says, I now understand why pride is the worst of the sins. Since it triggers an endless doubling down, the person who was conned cannot admit to it. So they magnify their error until the cost becomes catastrophic. Looking back now, he says, I can see the origins of their own downfall in a mix of wicked spirit and early life trauma. The people who we thought were friends and turned out to be merely acquaintances with a shared context and past. They didn't understand who we really are in terms of our values. And neither did we see them clearly for who they are. The scamdemic in particular has resolved such misconceptions as you cannot hide whether you are a colluder or a resistor. Those with whom we share a blood relationship may have nominally been family, but many have belatedly realized there was no true love there, and that duty was one way. So Martin Getty says we're having to build new families of choice, as our families of origin have abandoned our delight in life for an adulation of death. Once someone starts to suffocate and imprison children, indoctrinate them into premature and perverse sexualization, and inject them with poisons... There's no going back to how we used to relate. Occam's mirror has shown the stark divide between those willing to engage in human sacrifice and those willing to resist it with all their might and make sacrifices to do so. To discover that your parents or siblings would maim or sterilize their own children for group approval is disturbing, but he says at least now we know. No matter how difficult things have been, he says there's no way I would want to go back to the world we had 5 or 15 or 25 years ago. I've looked in the mirror. I've seen both the beauty and the ugliness in far starker terms than ever before. But his point is, I'm no longer confused by claims that prettiness is putrid or vice versa. The transvestigated false idols in the mass media look hollow and pathetic. In contrast, he says, fluffy clouds have, and fruity bushes have become magical wonders of everyday living. Now, those are the words of somebody who has taken a good hard look at reality. And instead of insisting that reality bend to his wishes or bend to what he desires, he has adapted his thinking to reality. But as you can tell from what he's saying here, that can be kind of a lonely place. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out here to Garage Door Pros. In fact, if you look in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, you'll find a link to garagedoorproservices.com. And if you live in the southwest corner of Utah, or if you live in Mesquite, Nevada, or Colorado City, Arizona, I would really invite you to click on that link and get better acquainted with Garage Door Pros. It's a local company. They install, they service, they repair garage doors, doors that are made in America. And that includes insulated garage doors too, whether you want commercial service, residential service. If you have a garage door that, say, needs to be fixed, teenage driver learning to, to drive, whoops, these are the folks you want to call 
to get it fixed quickly. Call 435-525-2773 or go online and set up an appointment <clears throat> Excuse me, with garagedoorproservices.com. So I want to come back for just a moment to Martin Getty's article, What I Saw in Occam's Mirror. And I don't know if you have been through a similar journey where you have, uh, first of all, found out who you are and what you stand for because you encountered real resistance for the first time in the last couple of years. And maybe it was, you know, refusing to take the jab. Maybe it was questioning, hey, do I really need to be wearing a mask everywhere that I go? Or maybe it was just uh, wondering, are these lockdowns and all these official interventions really about protecting us? Or is this about trying to separate who will be obedient from who are going to be the problem children? I think there were some who recognized that fairly early on. But when he talks about what a painful process it is to realize that uh, the pe- there were people in your life, including people very close to you, who held far different values and were willing to buy into the mass psychosis And again, this is not to suggest that they're stupid or that they're evil for doing so, but simply that they they were either duped or stampeded by fear into a, a mindset from which it's very very hard to escape. And that's uh, that's tough. All of us have lost friends, have lost relationships, have had to say goodbye to opportunities because of what has been imposed on us this last couple of years. And this is especially true if you were one of the people who found the willingness to say, nope, I will not play that game. Martin Getty says, I've found who my true friends are, and it's those who will not compromise when it comes to harming children. He says, each of us faces personal strife, life setbacks, and occasional sagging morale. There's been a toll exacted by this psychological warfare, social division, and barbaric genocide. Yet he says, none of these loyal friends ever discusses with me whether we should switch from the narrow to the broad path. The protection of the young from predation is literally the issue we are willing to die for. And this clarity of purpose engenders a deep mutual trust. There is no cheap virtue signaling. Whether it's photographic art, doggy rescue, shoemaking, protest meetings, or vegetable gardening, there's always some kind of activity we can turn to in order to generate routines, order, and stability among the chaos. He says, when I look in the mirror at me and my collective, we have jettisoned a lot of the baggage of successful professional progress and narrowed our lives down to a few things that really bring us joy through care and creativity. There's been a shift in what generates meaning, and the leisure pursuits of those still in the matrix seem bizarre and irrelevant. He says, for many of us, the dominant theme of the Great Awakening so far is the the grating waiting. We know that the election fraud in America is being exposed. We know that the demon jabs will bring untold woe. We know that the mass media's lies will collapse. We know that we've been subjected to biocide and poisoning. We know that everything hidden is being brought into the light for cleansing. Eventually. But he says the timelines are long. Because the alternative is civil war or relapse into tyranny. Only the slow attrition of mind control can spring us from this prison of degraded consciousness. Now, Martin Getty says, I had to reframe patience from being a form of existential punishment into an achievement in order for it to appeal more to my own attainment-seeking and impatient character. 
He says, the waiting has become such an embedded feature of life, one almost wonders how we will cope when the final torrent of shocking events hits us. But he says, what I see in the mirror is how I and those close to me have found a sufficient place of inner peace and calm. We've been forced into radical acceptance of what is and that all events, however awful, may have a higher purpose. From necessity, we've had to learn forgiveness and detachment while not abandoning unconditional love. The attacks upon us have made us police our boundaries vigorously and let go of those relationships which no longer serve us. We may, we may not be happy on any particular day, but he says we can always choose to be grateful and aim for more realistic contentment. Now he says, if anyone from the future wishes they could have been here to experience these events, I urge you not to get into that time travel machine for a temporal vacation in the early 2020s. It's a mess and not a particularly endearing one. We've had to go through this difficult process of seeing ourselves, those close to us, and our society in the mirror, and it's not a pleasant picture. The paradox of change says we only transform when we fully identify with what is. So this vision of the vial was a mandatory preparation for the storm to come. We were about to be called upon to comfort those whose illusions are shattered, bodies wrecked, children poisoned. This process of uncomfortably staring at our own reflection has given us the grounding to know what is real and what is not, and what is our personal nonsense to our and what is our personal nonsense to own versus the madness of others. We've learned how to navigate ethical labyrinths by refusing to take the dead ends that lead us into harming others for our own interest. And Martin Geddes concludes by saying, I trust future generations benefit from our critical self-examination in the mirror, but please. He says, do not regret having missed out. I'm pretty struck by his, his observation that we are about to be called upon to comfort those whose illusions are shattered. I see this happening on a day-to-day basis. And maybe it's just because I'm in a position of proximity to people who are either uh, recently awakened or just opening their eyes for the first time. And I understand perfectly how tempting it is to want to You know, to rub their nose in it. Why didn't you see this before? Why did you take so long to wake up? And it's wrong to take that approach. It's wrong to condemn people for not seeing something as as quickly as you may have seen it. I like to remind myself, as well as my listeners, that we're all somewhere on that journey to try to find higher ground, to try to find a better vantage point from which we can survey the surrounding scene and the bigger picture and really understand the world around us. And for all the times people were patient with you and me, for all the times that people left us some trail markers so that we could find our way out of all that misinformation, we need to be magnanimous in that regard. Okay, so don't don't pick on the people who are just waking up. Don't uh, don't berate them for not getting here sooner. Welcome them, and I like how he he puts it. To Martin Gettys calls about comforting those whose illusions are shattered. It's devastating sometimes to learn how wrong we may have been. And in fact, part of uh, part of life, at least part of living a well-adjusted life and an examined life, is at least holding out the possibility. Hey. I still could be deceived. It's not a bad idea to regularly ask yourself, am I getting this right? Am am I really, you know, standing on on as firm a ground as I think so? 
It doesn't mean you wander around in a permanent state of indecision. It just means you you have the humility to admit, hey, as a human, I could be wrong about this. And it also gives you the freedom when you do encounter error in your thinking or you encounter new truth, which is probably the more uh, likely experience. You can quickly recognize it for what it is, adopt it and assimilate it into your life and change your thinking as necessary. Now, I know some people, oh, that sounds wishy-washy to me, but really, what's the purpose of life? If not to uh, learn truth, assimilate it, and then live it as best we can. You know, any person who's incapable of doing this is going to be a 15-year-old for pretty much the rest of their whole life. <laughs> is that is that something you aspire to? Do you want to live as a 15-year-old like that? I didn't think so. Okay, got to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a shout out here for lifesavingfood.com. Yep, it's food storage and emergency preparedness supplies. My friend Kendall Whiting has been helping people for quite some time get themselves a little better squared away to weather whatever storms may come. And from the looks of things, uh, there could be some very interesting storms, stuff we may not have anticipated. If you'd like to find out more, click on the link I provide in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. That's lifesavingfood.com. So to kind of build on the commentary from Martin Geddes I shared in those first two segments, wanted to just give you a quick little follow-up one. I'm not going to share the whole thing here, but there's a great essay by Heather Hying. You are not alone. Really and truly, you are not. This is from her Natural Selections Substack. And it's, uh, this is another one of those great little pick-me-ups that I think uh, could be very handy for those who are trying to stand firm, but also realizing the pressure is very real, and it comes from some very unexpected sources sometimes. She starts with a quote from Kurt Vonnegut from his book Timequake. It says, quote, Many people desperately need to receive this message. I feel and think as much as you do, care about many of the things you care about, although most people do not care about them. You are not alone. And Heather Hying says, I have been hearing from people who feel very much alone, people who are grateful that I and many others are speaking up and out. We who speak up are publicly analyzing trends and claims. We refuse to kowtow to authoritarians, including the ones who wear lab coats or have fancy degrees or work at legacy institutions. And we call out BS when we see it. Now, she says, because I'm one such public voice who's been standing for science and against newspeak, she says, I know this for sure. You are not alone. You, the people who I'm, whom I hear from, span all the demographic markers, young and old, rich and poor, so many skin colors and ethnicities and nationalities, religious affiliations and levels of education, politics and professions and predilections. She says, what most of you do not have is the knowledge that there are many others like you. Others who feel and think, much as you do, care about many of the things you care about. These others are likely walking on the very same streets that you walk on. They blend in. They self-censor. They're tired and scared, and thus they're mostly mute. How many times have you recently heard that COVID is over? Aren't cases rising? Didn't the president just get two back-to-back cases? 
Aren't we, in fact, stuck with this damnable virus forever now, and oughtn't we be thinking about that with some care and forethought? But instead, she says, tracks are being covered. We never said the virus would stop, or the vaccine, rather, would stop transmission. Yes, yes, you did. Old stories are being dusted off and trotted out. Well, it came from the seafood market. Nice try, but no. Early treatment with anything but the newest pharma fix is mocked and sidelined, and we continue to see evidence of mass formation in and among other things, the mantra, yeah, I got COVID, but at least I'm vaccinated and boosted. Now, Heather Hying says, those of us who can't help but see these inconsistencies are bewildered by how many around us are blind. It can feel willful, the blindness, and in some cases, no doubt it is, but in many others, it's not. One correspondent recently said to her, the responses that come back when she tries to share information, links to research papers, reports put out by the CDC, the World Health Organization, the National Institute of Health, Pfizer, and more, are varied, yet they all lead to the same conclusion. I won't look at that, some say simply. At least it's honest. Trump owns the CDC, others have told her, rather bizarrely and erroneously. I'm not interested in conspiracy theories, goes a a favorite retort. Conspiracy theory is a highly useful epithet. It can be wielded with no evidence and leaves a stain behind on all that it touches. Anti-vaxxer works in much the same fashion. I won't participate in denialism, is another response, as if information itself can be denial, and as if rejecting some avenues of inquiry before assessing them isn't in itself a form of denialism. And finally, there's this go-to response for any who want their interlocutor to leave them alone already. I don't have time. Well, Heather Hying says, we all make our choices, don't we? We We all don't make time for some things that we know we ought to. In those failures to prioritize some things over others, we reveal our preferences. We also, many of us, crave more simplicity, fewer choices, fewer moving parts in our complicated lives. So it's understandable that when asked to consider something that is complex, outside of one's own expertise and about which all the journalistic and public health world assures you that you would be a fool to spend any time considering it all, many people say, no, I won't. No, that stinks of Trump. No, that's a conspiracy. No, I'm not that kind of person. No, I'm not listening. No, I can't hear you. No, I won't. She says, put the no, I won't people in your life aside for the moment. Their choices are their own. And consider instead those whom you do not yet know. The clerks and baristas, the customer service representatives and delivery people, your new neighbors down the street, or the guy sitting next to you at the bar. Consider that maybe they too don't believe everything we've been told you must believe in order to be a good person. And consider opening up to them just a little and see what happens. Now that's a little bit scary, right? I mean, you feel like you're sticking your neck out, but I think she she has a good point here. And there's something else that happens here, and that is when you stick your neck out and you say, okay, I'm going to have this conversation with somebody and just ask them, do you see this as well? You're giving them the opportunity and the validation to realize they're not alone. So maybe it's not so much a matter of I must find everyone and convince them to agree with me as simply I'm going to leave that door open, that possibility that there is someone out there who sees what I see but is shamed or otherwise, uh, you know, has been manipulated into silence, I'm going to open up that door for them so that they know that somebody thinks like they do. All right, going to shift gears here. This is a new essay from Paul Rosenberg. Got this one uh, just a couple of days ago. Have you asked an interesting question today? 
He says, this line, which I'm swiping from Izzy Robbie's mom, is something I'd like to write on billboards, bumper stickers, and a hundred other places as persistent reminders to all of us that we should ask something interesting every day. Now, he says, notice I'm not saying ask the hard questions or ask a smart question. Only that we ask at least one interesting question each day. And he says, if we did, I think we'd be much improved creatures after only a year or so. So what do we stand to lose from doing this? Well, he says, here's the passage where I discovered this little gem of an idea. It was in it was a remembrance of uh, Izzy Robbie, Isidore Isaac Robbie, the great physicist. Robbie said, my mother made me a scientist without ever intending to. Every other Jewish mother in Brooklyn would ask her child after school, so, did you learn anything today? But he says, not my mother. Izzy, she would say, did you ask a good question today? And that difference, asking good questions, made me become a scientist. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, asking interesting questions also made Robbie a better man than he would have been otherwise. It upgraded those around him as well. So, what kind of questions are we talking about? Well, Paul Rosenberg says, picking which questions to ask is an obvious hurdle to cross, especially since so much of modern life involves surface concerns, and self-generated questions are the fruit of our interior. All the more reason to ask them. But he says, a very first necessity, however, is to define what we should not ask, and that part is very clear. Whatever images of, of you people carry around in their heads, ideas associated with them are the ones you must avoid. Now, here's what he means. We all carry around images of our friends, neighbors, coworkers, and so on. They allow us to predict how they'll act in all the most common circumstances. These images form a large part of what we mean when we say we know someone. But the bad part of this arises when we'd like to change someone's mind about something we care about. Because you've interacted on such subjects before, whatever image they hold about you and your unshared beliefs, that's what they're prepared to defend against. So it's worse than useless to push whatever people think of as your ideology. It's what they're primed to push back against. When you're asking interesting questions, then you must avoid this. If they think of you as a libertarian, don't ask libertarian questions. If they see you as a Bitcoiner, don't ask Bitcoin questions and so on. So, just to prime, prime your imagination, here are some questions that Paul Rosenberg says strike him as interesting. So, if you were to ask, excluding family, friends, and historical figures, with whom would you most like to share a private dinner? Or, if you had to spend a month anywhere, alone, where would you go? If you had to spend a month in the distant past, where would you go? If you had to spend a month in the 20th century, where would you go? If private space travel was safe and affordable, would you go? Or what was the most satisfying moment you ever experienced? If you had more money than you'd ever need, what would you do? Imagine you were a hundred years old and looking back, of what would you be most proud? Two centuries from now, what thing that's common to us will appear ridiculous? Or what habit or style from the old days would you like to see come back? Try to stay with serious, serious subjects and serious answers, says Paul Rosenberg. Comedy has its place, but not here. In response to these kinds of questions, jokes are often evasions. If someone starts joking that way, he says, try to redirect them by saying you'd like to know what they really think. Then immediately add something like, Joe gave an interesting answer, saying that whatever. By doing this, you're giving the joke teller a chance to react to what Joe said rather than demanding they draw from themselves. Most people tragically are afraid 
to draw directly from themselves, so this may give them a less painful way to start. But the bottom line is please start asking interesting questions today. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. I'd like to give a shout out here to HSLAmmo.com. Yes, there is a link provided in the show notes if you'd like to click on it. You can scope out their website, decide which ammo you most need, and then make a purchase. How's that sound? HSLAmmo.com. High quality, new and remanufactured ammunition to better help you convert your money into skill. So along the lines of, uh, you know, standing up for yourself, making a stand in the world, you kind of get this little common theme here. We got to stand up. We got big or small. We all need to stand for something. But before that happens, we really need to know why we're standing. In fact, for most people, you've got to have this moment of moral clarity that says, okay, this is why I'm okay with breaking from the crowd or I'm okay with breaking from, you know, my company. If they're, you know, I, I think about all the people who, um, stepped away from their jobs rather than take a, a vaccine that they did not want. Now, maybe they would have got it on their own, but when that coercion was applied, they were like, nope, that's wrong. Shouldn't be forcing me to do stuff like this. Well, it's your job if you don't. And there were a surprising number of people who said, well, then, bye. And what they have is moral clarity. Anytime someone is willing to give up something that could be theirs, because their principles say, no, you can't surrender this part of you. Um, I'm so sorry. I cannot remember his name. Jorvac? Jorvich? I'm sorry. It's the, the, uh, the tennis player. The one who was invited to play at the U.S. Open or qualified to play, but we cannot come into the country because he's unvaccinated. And I, I'm terribly sorry for butchering his name. Um, I do know this. That is probably one of the best and most public examples of someone who... Has, he has the capacity to be simply the best tennis player of his time. He could be to tennis what Tiger Woods is to golf. But as long as he's unwilling to take that shot, countries are literally looking for any way to keep him out of their country. The U.S. is saying, nope, nope, you're not, uh, if you're not vaccinated, you can't come and play here. I believe he's having some trouble with Britain, too. I don't recall if they let him play, but he was asked by a reporter, are you really willing to give up the possibility of being known as the greatest tennis player of all time? And his answer was so classic because he said, yes, this is about my bodily autonomy. And I'm not going to give that up. You think about how many years this guy has worked to become the tennis professional that he is. And I think it's it's not an exaggeration to say he's he's sitting on top of the heap. But he's willing to walk away from all the, the fame, the acclaim, the riches, the titles, all of those things that would go along with him being the best tennis player out there are worth less to him than the ability to call his his body, his himself, his own. You just don't see that kind of dedication to principle very often. I wanted to share with you a commentary here from Christopher Chantrill. 
And this is nice in the sense that it also gives a pretty good big picture view of what's going on around us. But it's titled, First We Establish a Moral Ascendancy. And if we're ever going to preserve the things that are worth preserving, we're going to definitely need that moral ascendancy. Christopher Chantrill says, okay, so the transitory inflation wasn't really transitory and the current mild recession isn't really a recession. Yes, sir, Mr. Ruling Class. Still, the Fed raised interest rates twice in the last two months and the stock market is, uh, wow, ticking up. Now over at Conservative Treehouse, Sundance thinks it's all a cunning plan by the Davos jet set. Hey, they knew that inflation wasn't transitory. It's all part of the plan. Well, he says, I don't agree. I don't think that our lords and masters are that smart. Janet Yellen, Jerome Powell, Ron Klain, Clousy Baby, anybody? And he says, I think the tell is all the fuss and feathers about whether inflation is transitory or not and whether the recession is really a recession or not. See, in my insurrectionist mind, a ruling class that's solid in the saddle doesn't stoop to argue about the definition of a recession. It doesn't need to. Yes, but how do we strike the next insurrectionist blow? Well, Donald Devine, Reagan's head of the Office of Personnel Management, thinks we should rearrange the deck chairs on the bureaucratic Titanic. Theodore Roosevelt uh, Malik says the answer is going on offense, including personnel ready to go, an action plan on issues, and going nuclear on day one. We indict loads of criminal Democrats. And here's something he says that I interpreted from Art Laffer addressing the kids at a Young America's Foundation event. Every time you raise taxes on a rich guy, you shrink the economy by the amount of jobs that that guy would have created. Every time you increase spending on the poor, you shrink the economy by the jobs those poor people might have worked at, but didn't. Get it? Government is a social construction designed by God to shrink the economy. So why are our Bidenoid friends running around doing the Keynesian cops thing on inflation and recession? Now, Christopher Chantrill says, it's simple. Our liberal friends have no idea that when you spend trillions of dollars, you don't stimulate the economy. Instead, you shrink it. They just know spend, tax, stimulate. It's science, baby. Inflation, recession, inconceivable. But before we can defeat the deep state on their failed administrative state and their failed economy, there is the moral front. And the simple fact is that we don't get to do the right thing for our country until after we have morally disarmed our liberal friends. And for all the talk of cleaning the stables of bureaucracy and going on offense and that a government shrinks the economy, we first of all need a moral ascendancy that puts our liberal friends on the back foot in the same way that the race card puts the rest of us on the back foot. Now, Christopher Chantrill Chantrill says, uh, my judgment has been that the educated class has been the worst, the most unjust, and the most conceited ruling class in all history. And it should be curling up with shame. So what he's saying here is it's our job to make the educated class curl up with shame. As in teach the educated class the moral facts of life. You, the educated class, cooked up a plan to bring justice to the working class. Now you educated Brahmins sneer at the workers and the workers are dying of despair. When you said you wanted to fight for the workers, you ended up making things worse. You, the educated class, cooked up a plan to liberate women from subordination to the patriarchy. Now women are expected to subordinate their main childbearing years to education, careers, and relationships. And they've been taught that getting rid of unwanted children is the most basic of human rights. You said you wanted to fight for women. You ended up making things worse. 
You, the educated class, helped to liberate blacks from slavery and from racial discrimination. But your contribution in the last 50 years has been to use blacks as cat's paws to discriminate against the broad majority of ordinary middle-class people that never had the inclination and never had the power to be racists. You said you wanted to fight for blacks. You ended up making things worse. You, the educated class, will probably live to regret your support of homosexuals. I suspect it will come in the wake after the third major epidemic arising out of gay promiscuity. After AIDS, after monkeypox, after the yet-to-come post-monkeypox gay promiscuity epidemic. You say you want to fight for homosexuals? You will end up making things worse. He says, the way I figure it, dear educated rulers, is your batting average is zero. Normally, a sports team that does that badly fires the coach and starts over. Now, Christopher Chantrill says, I doubt if our liberal friends are up to the challenge of doing a reboot of their failed and shameful rule. As for us, we need to be sure that we are up to the challenge. Now, when he talks about moral ascendancy, I just, I want to go off for a minute on this. This is not the same thing as being a moral busybody and going around and by public policy, making sure that everybody does the right thing and they're promptly at Sunday school at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning, just like they should be. But it is about having a very clear understanding of right and wrong. And one of the biggest places where we need that understanding is knowing what is right and what is wrong for government to be involved in. Now, this is where I may lose some folks because I very much subscribe to the idea that uh, Leonard Reed put forth as far as, well, what should be allowed in a free society? What kind of things should be allowed? You know what his answer was? Anything peaceful. Think about that. Anything peaceful should be on the table. A person ought not be punished for it. But do you see that much today? With all the malaprohibitive laws that we have, politicians' words on paper, thou shalt not do this. Here, have a ticket. It just gets worse all the time. So if you are a person who has moral clarity, meaning you know who you are, you know what you stand for, Chances are good you will be effective when it comes to standing up for what's right and pushing back against the things that are trying to to strip as much traditional morality out of our society and replace it with the amorality that comes along with, well, Marxism. But it's that whole uh, beam in your own eye before you reach for the moat in your brother's eye. I think there's some wisdom in that. Because it won't make you into somebody who wants to go pick a fight everywhere you go. But you'll definitely know those times when you need to plant your feet and say, here I stand. I can do no more. This is The Brian Hyde Show.